following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Turning to our continued studies in the life of David in 2 Samuel, I'll read the ninth chapter of 2 Samuel as our primary text, but first, one verse only from 2 Samuel 4, verse 4, because this really sets an essential part of the circumstance before us. This is at the time when news came of King Saul and his son Jonathan both having been killed in battle. We read in 2 Samuel 4, 4, what happened to Saul's household. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Now, this man might have been forgotten forever, but for what happens in 2 Samuel 9. I read there, 2 Samuel 9, 1 and following. This is David now come to power. He's reigned for a number of years. This is almost 10 years after that verse that I just read. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, Yes, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan, and he is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodivar. Then the king David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodivar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear. For I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should regard for a dead dog such as I? And the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and all his house I have given to your master's grandson. You and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants, and Ziba said, 
according to all that my lord the king commands his servants, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both of his feet. This is God's word. Many of you who are older will remember perhaps the approximate time when something called the Americans with Disabilities Act was passed in the late 20th century, making a very significant change in our society in many ways. Suddenly, sidewalk curbs could be reduced to ramps so that folks with difficulties could get over those curves. Suddenly, restrooms in public buildings were modified. Braille signs went up. Elevators were installed in new buildings. I know when we worked on this church edition design 10 years ago, we were faced with many things that had to be done to comply with the Americans with Disabilities Act. And we had possibly two ways of looking at that. We could say, what are all these rules that cause a lot of extra expense? But I rather like to think that we looked at it a different way and said, just think how obeying these rules are going to make our church so much more accessible to more of our brothers and sisters with physical disabilities. After all, you or I may not be in a wheelchair today, but who knows when we would be. Just last night, after I had finished this sermon, Carol and I were having our supper in a nearby fast food restaurant, and I couldn't help but notice a young woman right across from me that got her food in her tray and went to look for a table, and I could immediately recognize this young woman, probably in her mid-30s, had a very, very great difficulty in walking. Her feet seemed to be turned. I don't know exactly what the nature of her trouble was, but she probably took four times the amount of time that you or I would walk to a table, and it seemed like every step was painful. And I thought, what would it be like to have her life, to have that difficulty in my life? And yet, when we think about that, we realize that every one of us has our disabilities, don't we? We all have our special needs, so-called. They might be mental or psychological, spiritual. They're not only physical. But here in 2 Samuel 9, we read a true story about a man tragically crippled in his feet. We had a son born with his feet turned inward very badly. His toes kind of faced each other like that. And had he been born a century earlier, we know he wouldn't have walked normally. The wonders of orthopedic help was just fantastic to see how Dan's feet were turned, corrected, and made in every way normal. But unfortunately, the man Mephibosheth, or the young boy Mephibosheth, had no access to anything like that. Apparently, this fall happened when a nurse was rushing with him. As we read, he fell. Somehow, ankles or feet were broken, bones never mended, and nothing was ever fixed. So here was a man who had a fall from his stature as a prince in Israel, the grandson of Saul, to being a prince no longer when David was king. But worse than that, he had a physical situation that 
left him without any kind of hope or joy, you would think, in his life. He could hardly walk at all. He couldn't provide for himself. His life was fraught with a great difficulty. I would say to you today that the biggest lesson we're going to see from this passage, and by the way, this is one of David's best possible moments, and Lord willing, next time we're going to see David, unfortunately, in one of his worst possible moments. But here he exhibits something wonderful as he acts in a Christ-like way. And it seems like God gave us this picture of David acting on behalf of Mephibosheth. I will get the word out. You have to say that word a lot in this chapter. It's not an easy one. David acting for Mephibosheth is a wonderful demonstration of the grace of God to all of us in salvation. And that's the main picture, I think, that it presents for us. First of all, I ask you to see how we have described here the conditions in which the grace of God finds every one of us. Now, you heard the description, Mephibosheth was son of Jonathan. Why would it be that the household was emptying out and a nurse was grabbing this five-year-old boy and running away with him? That isn't hard to figure out. Because in ancient times when a king was succeeded by another king, it was a very common thing and almost taken for granted that the new king would want to eliminate any possible rivals from the former royal household, possibly just by extermination of, of any particularly male relatives. And that's apparently what people suppose David might do. After all, Saul had been chasing him around for years and years and making his life miserable. Why wouldn't David reply by eliminating any possible heirs of Saul since Jonathan had died already in the battle? So we have this man with the odd name. By the way, just try saying it to yourself three times quickly. I'll I'll guarantee your tongue will get tied up. Mephibosheth, strange name, in Hebrew means seething with dishonor. Isn't that an odd name? A, A young man who has a boiling pot in his heart of the dishonor and misfortune that he has suffered. He's fallen from being a royal heir and even from being a physically a capable person of walking on his own or making a living for himself, seething with dishonor. Now, I'm not pointing at anybody or thinking of anybody in particular, but I'm sure you adults can know that, you know, this young man who's about 15, we think, at the time of this text, isn't it true that some 15-year-olds have a little bit of an attitude? Just possibly. You, you, You don't know anybody personally, but you know, that's an attitude for sometimes a chip on your shoulder or feeling a little disgruntled with life. Well, here's a young man that had a huge reason to feel disgruntled, seething with the dishonor of his position. And then, to make it worse, you know, here's a, a little message contained in this text too. He lived in a place that kind of the, in the wilderness called Lodivar, and if you want to get a translation of that, the Hebrew experts tell me it means a place without pasture. Hmm. Can you picture the place without pasture? Rocks and sand and very few trees. Nothing grows there. It's not green. Here's this young man who has fallen 
from a world, worldly position of advantage, been given a physical disability that is severe, and he lives in a place without pasture. What kind of a life do you call that? And then one day comes this royal summons from Jerusalem. King David wants to see Mephibosheth. Now, everybody that's helping him, living with him, taking care of him, thinks they know exactly what this means. This is it. David's been a king for a while. He's getting his affairs in order. He's, he's setting things up in his kingdom, and he's now going to deal with any potential remaining enemy arrival to his throne. Possibly Mephibosheth thought. I don't have his thoughts recorded here, but it isn't too hard to think of Mephibosheth imagining to himself, aha, this is it. My poor, unfortunate head is going to be separated from the rest of my body. I just hope they do it quick. It's not stretching anything to say that Mephibosheth represents a paradigm, a parable, if you will, in real life of each of us before we came to Christ. A man who had fallen from high position, a man who was given every kind of disadvantage. We too had had morally and spiritually a great fall that lamed our souls. And we too had lived in exile from the holy God and lived on our own resources and our own wits in unfortunate circumstances. And what would we think if we experienced a call of God to come into his presence? We would think this is it. Uh, Finally, I'm going to have to make that accounting with God that I owe to him. My shame, my degradation, all of the lowly things about my life are going to be brought out and I'm going to be accountable. We too are called by a God to whom we owe an accounting. Secondly, though, if you're picturing this as a, a, a parable of our salvation, you'd say in the second place that The salvation that covenant grace from God bestows is pictured here as well. Notice the motivation or the basis on which David showed grace to Mephibosheth. He didn't say, well, you know, I'd like my administration to be one that helps out people with special needs. And so anybody that has a a physical difficulty is going to get a special deal in my king. No, that's not it. This whole thing was aimed at his relationship to Jonathan, which you probably remember from previous discussion. These two men who were such great brothers on the battlefield and who, who literally came together and vowed vows to one another, I will be faithful to you no matter what, said David to Jonathan, the son of Saul. You go back to 1 Samuel 18 and 20 to find that. In chapter 20 of 1 Samuel, we read them saying, the Lord act between me and you and all of your offspring forever. It wasn't just, I will help you and you will help me. I pledge myself to you and your household. Whichever one of us survives the other, we will always respect those who belong to our households. This was the motive for David to say, is there anybody left from Jonathan? Maybe he remembered vaguely that such a son existed as Mephibosheth. Maybe he didn't really, wasn't really sure. Was he still around? Did he still live? But he asked the question. And then he immediately determined, I will act on my covenant oath. 
to this dear friend of mine, Jonathan. And he defines so well for us what the Bible calls grace here. Don't get the terms mixed up. Grace is not justice. You know, justice gives a person what is due to him. And mercy withholds something that is due to a person. But grace does the best thing, giving a wonderful free gift of something the person never expected, did not deserve, and could not expect to see happen at all. It was covenant grace on behalf of David and Jonathan that this long-ago promise, which, by the way, probably nobody else knew about. This was a private promise between David and Jonathan. Who would have held David responsible for this and said, hey, you didn't keep your promise to Jonathan? Nobody. After all, he was a king. Who tells the king what to do? But not only was he the king, he needed to, he was the only witness of this promise, but he didn't need other people to tell him to do it. It was a vow made deep in his heart that caused him to want to be faithful to this dead friend of his and anyone of his house. What was God's action on our behalf at the cross of Jesus except this same covenant grace? We talk about something called the covenant of redemption that theologians do, and they're saying the covenant of redemption is an agreement between the persons of the Trinity, God the Father, the Son, and Spirit in timeless eternity, agreeing that they would create a people for themselves and for their praise who would come to them in faith and praise them in human history. And God, the persons of the Godhead, vowed to do that. Jesus was echoing that covenant of redemption in John 17 when he prayed the night before the cross to his Father and said, Father, those you have given me, those people we vowed, that we would draw out of the world to be ours. I have ministered to them, and I am bringing them to you. The Bible takes covenant keeping very seriously, not just for David, not just for the persons of the Godhead, but for us. I grew up with a father and a grandfather who were down-to-earth men. Neither was college-educated, but they were moral men men who often in something going on, I remember one time my dad and I go into the hardware store, get something, and we got home, and, and dad reached in his pocket to take out the change that he'd been given at the register and suddenly realized that he had several dollars more than he was supposed to have. He had more money than he had actually given the man at the register for the whatever small part it was or something that he was buying. And my dad said, oh, Son, if you can stay here if you want, we have to go back. I said, what's the matter? Dad said, he gave me too much change. And we went back to the hardware store. My dad didn't need to give me any lectures that day to teach me about honor and integrity. A couple dollars, hardware store is not going to miss it. But my dad knew that that would be against biblical integrity. Dad said to me, I know numerous times, son, if you give your word that you're going to do something, see that you do it. See that your word is your bond. I say something like that to couples who stand right down here before me at a wedding. We say, look, you're about to take covenant vows. God is your witness. All your friends and family are your witness. And this is one of the most important vows you'll ever take. 
Be faithful to it. God honors faithfulness to covenant vows. Look at how this story of Mephibosheth pictures what happens to us in Christian salvation. Our very lives are saved by God's covenant action towards us, just as Mephibosheth's life was spared. He came and said, what is your servant that you notice a dead dog like me? I think he was sincere. I'm nobody. I'm nothing. Who's the great king of Israel to notice me? Isn't that what we say to God when he saves our very life eternally? Romans 6 says the wage of sin is death, eternal death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. We ought to be blotted out from God's sight, but instead we're saved to live eternally in the presence of God. The Father designed, as he said in Romans 5, if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him by the death of his son, how much more are we going to be saved by his life? Let's not forget that one week after Easter. The life of Christ is the token and power that gives us to live forever in his presence. Also, a Christian receives the great peace and security similar to what Mephibosheth received here. David said to him, don't be afraid. I'm going to protect you. Don't worry. And he gave him this new status at court to be treated like a son, not an outcast. And then further, he loaded on him the blessings that we see in verse 11 and following of chapter 9, the privilege of sitting at his own table, never having to work again, having rich estates that would produce income that would all be his. And not only that, it isn't just that he would go off and have a a great estate. He would sit in the dining room of the king himself and be one of the king's own family members. What a picture of what God in Christ does for his own people. You know, I don't think any of us would be that likely to come before God and say, God, why did you notice a dead dog like me? And yet we gladly sing John Newton's hymn, Amazing Grace That Saved a Wretch. A wretch is a dead dog like me, an undeserving person. Jesus Christ does for us and provides for us just as David provided for Mephibosheth. We read in 1 John 3, 1, the saying, Behold what manner of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. Ephesians 1, 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us now with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Christians cannot claim they have a scarcity of resources at the table of their great king and savior. You know, we don't proclaim a salvation and say, here's a God who will save you and make sure you have a ham sandwich every day so you, so you don't die of hunger. No, here is a God and savior that will seat you with himself and give you abundance and protection and safety unto eternity itself. Second Peter 1 says we are given everything we need for life and godliness in Christ. No, that's not everything you want. 
but it is everything you need. So I suggest thirdly, as we see this whole incident of David and Mephibosheth as a kind of parable or or picture of what God does for us in Christ, we might ask, what response ought we to make ourselves? Now, we can't pay God back for grace. That's not what grace is. It doesn't require or ask for a payback. But let's look at how Mephibosheth responded, and it's beyond this chapter. If you want to Uh, put your finger in a page further ahead and mark it as your homework. I always like to give you homework assignments. I always wonder if anybody ever does them. But uh, 2 Samuel 19, you might read later on. This is a later incident. Let me just fill in for a minute what's happening. David experienced a rebellion by his handsome, charismatic son, Absalom, who tried to take away his throne, led a revolt, got many people on his side, so that David actually had to retreat from Jerusalem for a while. People spit at him as he left the city. They rejected him. They thought Absalom was the guy to lead. David was gone for a while. Absalom was killed. The revolt was put down, and David came back. Well, when he came back, that's our concern in chapter 19. The question was, who has remained loyal to the king? You've been out of your capital city. You know that many have sided with your handsome son, who is now dead, Who's still for you? And how would you know? Well, it happens that this same man, Mephibosheth, now older, probably in his 20s, had stayed behind while David fled. And so David is wondering, is Mephibosheth still my man or not? And he begins to question him and talks and maybe is a little suspicious of him. And here's what Mephibosheth had to say to David in chapter 19. He came and said, Let someone else have all the estates you granted to me. I don't care for them at all. Do with me whatever you want. He said, my joy is that my king has returned. I have been privileged to sit at the king's own table. I love this sentence. What right do I have to ask my king for anything more? You see how Mephibosheth reciprocated the grace of King David. He said, I'm your man. I'm I'm not your man because of the estates you gave me. Take them all away if you want. I have been privileged to sit at your table. I don't need anything more than that. What an outstanding picture of Christian redemption that is. What more do we need than to know the living God has called us by our names and brought us beside him in Christ and set us in a position of privilege for today and for eternity. I know we don't probably show the kind of humility that would ever pray to God and say, God, why do you have regard for a dead dog like me? As a matter of fact, we probably pray something more like, God, haven't you noticed that I'm one of your finer servants and you haven't been shelling out the gifts quite like I thought you should? or something like that. God has taken us from lowly places and seated us in places on high. When we used the 113th Psalm as a call to worship, if I can find it here, I want to just bring out the phrase that made me use that Psalm this morning. As there the psalmist wrote and said to God that he raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, the princes of their people. 
That's what God does to his people in Christ. Can we say to him, oh God, my Father and Savior, I am more satisfied just having you as my Lord than all the gifts you might load upon me. You are the source of my satisfaction. Now, there's one more very down-to-earth application here that I think we should not miss. While I see this chapter in its greatest benefit being a sort of parable or paradigm, you might say, of Christian salvation and grace from God, certainly there's, there's a more really practical, and not that salvation is impractical, but, but everyday kind of application of this as it makes us think about the place of people with special needs in our lives. We've used that term today, and I think it's a good term, people with special needs. We all have special needs. My need might not be walking so painfully across the restaurant that I draw the notice of people because of the difficulty of the steps I take. My need might be crippling pride or great arrogance or a great stubbornness or agnosticism about my character. People all have special needs. Some wear those needs in a way that's more obvious than others. Some can keep them very well hidden. But did you ever notice how not only David but Jesus noticed the special needs people all the time? The blind, the leper, the woman with an issue of blood, the lame man, all the time he was noticing these folks. The folks that others were scandalized because they said, why is he spending time with that person? And the implication was in the first century that person was a human castaway. There was no social welfare network or hospitals or places for folks to seek special needs. If you couldn't make it on your own, if you were a widow without a son or a brother or someone to support you, you were in tough shape. And people literally died in the gutters as with no one to particularly care. And here was Jesus going about working acts of miraculous power on behalf of these who were the special needs folks of his society. Can I suggest to you that God will minister to us when we notice those among us with so-called special needs and I add again, that's all of us. It's just that some of the special needs are a little more obvious than others. But as we seek ways to serve and care and assist and support folks around us, folks in your family, your community, our congregation, you know what? We're getting a glimpse of what we look like to God. Really, it's what you look like to God a case of a special need that he has to deal with. Jesus Christ goes abroad in our world seeking the spiritually, physically, mentally, emotionally disabled and those who are ashamed and broken and all kinds of problems that lame them, if you will. The question is always, are you willing to look at your own life realistically and see where you are lamed? to see where you are needy. God cannot deal with those who say, I've got nothing wrong with me. I've got no serious sin on me. I'm sure glad I'm not one of those unfortunates. God cannot deal with such a person. 
what I would say to you if we were at the Lord's table today, which we're not, but if we were coming before the Lord's table, I would say to you, why not join the Mephibosheth Club and come to your God and say, God, why would you specially notice or spare a dead dog like me? True fellowship with Christ is for those who will recognize their disabilities, name them before God, and then know that in Christ, God invites those folks to come to his table, and he says, have a seat beside me, because you belong to me. I chose you. I went after you. I sent my son for you, just because I wanted you beside me. And I can assure you of this, that once your crippled feet, whatever they look like, are under the table of King Jesus, they are hidden out of sight now and forever. Thanks be to God. Father, thank you for this wonderful true story. Mephibosheth is a hard name to say. But what a story of grace. Thank you that in Jesus Christ you did the same thing as Christ's ancestor David did. Father, use us to encourage, to help, to support, to notice, to love the special needs we see in one another. For Jesus' sake, amen.